Good morning, church. Um, my name is Brett Ferris. I lead the setup and teardown team here at Hospital uh, here at Hospital here at Providence North, and we are in the home stretch of our doctrine series. Um, today we're going to be digging into the doctrine of worship, and next week. My man, Daniel Moore, is going to be on stage bringing the word around stewardship, so get excited about that. Um, But today, we are going to dig into the doctrine of worship. So, question, has anyone ever heard of the famous theologian Tim Hawkins? Right, you may be familiar with some of his work, things like things you don't say to your wife, um, things like inappropriate wedding songs, my personal favorite, the Chick-fil-A song. Um, Obviously, Tim Hawkins is not a theologian. He's a comedian, and he does a great bit on hand-raising in church, and it's a perfect lead-in to this sermon today, so I'm going to make my best attempt at stand-up comedy here, so bear with me, but um, some people are are not comfortable with with hand-raising in church, and that's fine, but we here at Providence are a hand-raising church. Okay, um, at least I think we are, because I sit on the front row and all I can see is my wife and Sean. And so as far as I'm concerned, we are a hand-raising church, okay? Um, I may be wrong, I don't know, but by, like, like, it is allowed here, okay? So, but by show of hands, like who here does not think that we are a hand-raising church? Ah, right, right, ah, no, ah, it won't come, right? No, there, there, it, is, it is okay, and if you're not comfortable raising your hands in church, that's fine, but um, there is a natural progression in the process of hand-raising while you're singing at church, right? And there are names for the different steps in that progression, and so I'm going to walk us through some of those, those names and that, pro- that progression today to help you with this, okay? So here we go, right? It starts, starts right here with your hands in your pocket and an elbow flap, right? Little elbow flap, we're just getting the, getting the heart rate up, getting the blood flowing, right? And then once we get warmed up, hands come out of our pockets and we come to our first position, right? Hold the TV, hold the TV, and then you go to big screen, right? And you're in the zone right here, right? We're at big screen, we're feeling it, Zach's doing his thing, right? And we come up just a little bit, my fish is this big. My fa- fishermen are liars, my fish is this big, right? We're, we're coming up a little bit more and we move to the next one, hold my baby, right? We are in the zone now with hold my baby, hold my baby, okay? We come up a little bit more from here. We're gonna go up to the one everybody knows, goalpost, right? Well, arms are up, we're feeling good. Now my personal favorite, we're gonna mix in a little heartburn right here, okay? Heartburn, both sides, both sides. A little heartburn, all right? We're up to goalpost, we're gonna go up with one hand and we're in it, right? We're in it, we got pointer hatchet schoolroom, okay? <laughs> pointer hatchet schoolroom and we're feeling it, we're feeling it, right? You can get loosey-goosey here, right? We can wash the window, right? We're washing the window, and now that we're up over our shoulder, we're ready for the big three. You ready? Here we go. We're going to go village people, Rocky, touchdown. That's it. You're set. You're a pro, all right? Village people, Rocky, touchdown. And now you have no excuse for being a hand raiser as we worship at Providence North. All right? Now, amen. That's funny, right? And I guarantee you a lot funnier when Tim Hawkins does it, check him out on YouTube. But um, so often we think of worship as the one or two songs that we sing uh, at the beginning of a service, the song that we sing after service, but worship is so much more than that, right? So here's the roadmap for today. We're gonna talk about what is worship. We're gonna answer the question, why do we worship God? 
We're gonna unpack some barriers to worship. And then finally, we're gonna look at what it looks like to worship the way God calls us to, okay? So let's jump in. What is worship? So in the Old Testament, the primary word used and translated to worship is a Hebrew word, and it's that, right? And now I, I kind of geek out on languages. I'm not smart enough to learn any of them, but I like to try to pronounce some of them, right? And so the, the way that you say this word is shechach, okay? And since we all have masks on and nobody's gonna spit on each other, we're gonna say this word together because it's fun to say. All right, everybody on the count of three. Ready? One, two, three. Nice. Okay, it, it, you gotta embrace the part, right? We're speaking Hebrew here, all right? We're gonna do it last, one time. One, two, three. Shachach. Now you speak Hebrew. Doesn't it feel cool? Right? Um, and, and a good example of where we find this word translated to worship is in the book of Exodus, chapter 4. Um, and at this point, Moses has just encountered God in the burning bush. And um, God calls Moses and tells him to go back and talk to the Israelites. And Moses says, God, who do I tell you? Um, who do I tell them that you are? And God says, tell them that I am has sent you, right? And so Moses and his brother Aaron go back to the elders of the Israelites and they do and say what God told them to do and say. And what the elders do is when the elders heard, it says that they believed. And Exodus chapter four, verse 31 says, when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshiped. And the word here for worship is shachach. It means to bow down in reverence to. It means to prostrate oneself. Fast forward to the New Testament, right? The primary word in the New Testament translated is a Greek word, proskuneo, right? And I looked up how to pronounce that and it's, Proskuneo, it's not that fun, right? But it literally means to kiss, as in to kiss the hand of like royalty or a superior, even to go further and to bow down and kiss the ground in front of someone, right? Very simply put, worshiping, like Sean said, is to place such worth on someone or something that you bow down in reverence before it. You prostrate yourself before it. And that that, that's what I want us to think about today when we think about worship. Not so much just singing, but this idea of placing such worth and value that we bow down before it, right? And that doesn't always play out physically. We don't always like physically bow down um, in worship of God. Sometimes um, it's more of an evaluation of the condition of our hearts and our minds to say that what it is that we worship is above us. It has authority over us, right? It has, it has lordship over us and we submit to that lordship. We, shachach, we bow down, we proskuneo, we kiss the ground in front of it. That's worship. And it can absolutely happen through song, right? There are, there are things that can trigger worship and then there are times where we can intentionally step into a state of worship of God, right? And, and, and so that can happen through song. There's something about music that triggers that outward and inward expression that elevates God, right? That can happen in observing creation, right? That can happen in biting into a perfectly cooked, perfectly seasoned steak. That can trigger worship. That's what worship is, right? And so second question, why do we worship God? Okay, we talk about what is worship. Second question is, why do we worship God? And that's a whole sermon that you can preach in and of itself, and I don't have time to unpack it all today. But without establishing this attribute of God, there's no point in going down the road of worshiping God. So what is it about God that makes him worthy to be worshiped exclusively? 
Jen Wilkin articulates this really well in her study of Genesis, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna let her say it. She says that God needs nothing. Before he created, he was good. Without all things or anything, God has created all things and needs none of them. He cannot be weakened or diminished. He does not need us, yet he created us to bring him glory. Our obligation is to him first because he is our origin. When we contemplate the God who is in the beginning, we should fall in worship and we should seek to amplify the one who is like no other. She says, God is the source, right? He is the source of all life. He is the source of all matter. And, and the way that I kind of wrap this up is that God is the uncreated creator. And the second part to the second part of the answer to this question, why is God worthy of our worship, is that the God who was, the God who is, and the God who will always be exists perfectly, and he exists purely. God is worthy of our worship because he is spotless. He's without blemish, right? And there's a word for this. The word is holy. God is holy. And again, you could preach an entire series on the holiness of God, but today, don't take my word for it, right? Let's listen to those who are in the presence of God in the throne room of heaven in Revelation chapter four. It says this, it says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. These are elders who are in the throne room of God bowing down and they say, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. We worship God. Why? Because he is holy. All right. Foundation work is done. Okay? That's the foundation work. Now we're going to build on that foundation. So if you will, y'all turn with me to the book of John chapter 4. Okay? John chapter 4 is a fantastic chapter around worship. And Jesus in this story is revealing and teaching things about worship uh, in and through this interaction with the woman at the well. Some of you may have heard of the story of the woman at the well. Okay? That's what we're going to dig into today. And in this story of the woman at the well, we're going to see insight into some barriers to worship. And then we're going to see Jesus teaching what worship should look like. Okay, so in John chapter four, we find Jesus and his disciples traveling on foot to Galilee and they stop in a Samaritan town called Sychar and Jesus sends the disciples on into town to get some lunch while he takes a rest break at a water well. And now it's no coincidence that they're going toward this town of Sychar, a Samaritan town. It's no coincidence that Jesus sends the disciples on ahead and leaves himself alone at the well. It's no coincidence, coincidence that he's at this particular well at this particular time because he is about to engage in a conversation with a very particular woman, okay? So we pick up the story in verse six. It says, it was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Right? And already we gotta stop and unpack some, okay? Because it, the sixth hour is noon, okay? It's high noon. And it is strange that this woman would be here performing the task of drawing water in the middle of the day. It doesn't make sense because typically when water is drawn, it's done early in the morning when it's cool, right? The sixth hour is hot. It's hot in the desert, right? We lived in the desert for a little while, a while back. We lived in Arizona in the month of June, right? And our kids were little at the time. They were wearing nothing but diapers because that's how we roll. And 
like we, we would get out of the car. I remember early on, we would get out of the car and walk to uh, the front door of the apartment and you turn around and the kids are in their diapers like waddling along and they just start whimpering, right? And crying because their feet are literally burning on the concrete, right? Don't, parenting moment. I know it's Arizona, we never didn't, whatever, right? But it's hot, right? So they would typically draw water in the cool of the morning. Um, and then secondly, the, the water that they are drawing is, is used for tasks throughout the day, right? And so they need this water for things like cooking and cleaning and washing. And so they would go first thing in the morning so that they had the water to do things with. We still see this, still see this today in third world countries, right? Like water is still drawn from the well and it's done early in the morning. And so it is strange, but not random, that this woman is at the well at the middle of the day. And we're gonna find out why a little bit later. So Jesus says to her, give me a drink. And she responds with this. He says, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Now get this, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So in one sentence apiece, Jesus engages in, and then the woman points out this massive sociocultural no-no. See, the Jews hated the Samaritans. A Jewish man would never interact with a Samaritan woman, right? And the Samaritans hated the Jews right back, but this was a, an intense level of hatred. And unfortunately, it's not that difficult for us to, to envision hatred amongst people groups right now, right? It's sad, but like this, this was intense hatred between the Jews and the Samaritans. Like Jews would literally go to the temple and pray to God and thank God that he did not create them Samaritans, right? It's intense hatred. And so it makes no sense that this Jewish man would be interacting and engaging with this Samaritan woman. We pick up in verse 10. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father, Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. And then in verse 13, we're gonna get um, this first barrier to worship. Jesus says to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so I won't be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And so in this interaction that society says is appalling, right? Jesus tees up his first teachable moment by asking this woman for a drink. The woman responds by saying like, why are you talking to me, um, Jewish man? Why are you talking to me, a Samaritan woman? Jesus' response, it goes right over her head. Right? Jesus says, like, I've got water that's on a whole other level, right? And, and if you knew who I was, you'd be asking me for this water. And you can tell it goes over her head because like, she just looks at what Jesus has on him. And he's like, hey, like, you have no bucket, you have no rope, you have nothing to carry the water in. Like, how are you going to, you don't, have anything, you don't even have what you need to use a well. How do you expect to get this living water? And Jesus responds with our first barrier to worship. He says, look, you're drinking from the wrong well. He points out the flaw in the well in front of them. And he says, you are drinking from the absolute wrong well. See, the well right here will never satisfy, right? That water will run out. It'll run out and you'll have to come back for more and that'll run out and you'll come back for more and more and more and you come back again and the cycle continues. And in the world we live in today, 
there are seemingly countless places for us to go to draw water from with the hopes of satisfying a thirst that can only be satisfied by Jesus. And we find ourselves returning again and again and again because those wells will never satisfy. Right, and obviously I'm talking about hypothetical wells here, but let me give you an example, okay? The well of money and comfort. Now I'm gonna be straight with y'all, I like stuff. I like new stuff, I like nice stuff, right? I wish like tomorrow that Chip and Joanna Gaines would come and like throw up a shiplap wall in my house. Like that would make me feel good, right? And we get energized and almost intoxicated with new stuff. It, but before we know it, like the, the, what we're ordering, the next new thing, like we're ordering that thing before the old one even gets delivered to our doorstep by Amazon. And a pastor that I heard preach on this drives this point home really well. He says this, he says, in our world today, what is new becomes old so incredibly fast. Therefore, the high that comes from what's new rarely even wears off before we replace it with something new. And before we know it, we're going from new thing to new thing to new thing. We keep drawing up that well, right? And it feels good for a second. Those new clothes, that new car, that new job, that new house, that new whatever it is, that once you get that, things will be good, right? For a moment. Then it loses its luster and it's time for something else. And here in upper middle class suburban America, we get so caught up in pursuing that next one last thing that'll put us right where we wanna be that we don't realize that we have believed the lie that the writers of Jerry Maguire, right, convinced us of so many years ago when they said, what? You complete me, right? It's a lie, but we believe it. And I don't think it's far-fetched to believe that we already know that, right? Like here in the Woodlands, I don't think it's a mystery the money and comfort and status are highly sought after. And we as believers, we're right there in the mix, aren't we? Like we as believers, we fundamentally know that that stuff won't satisfy and yet we're right there chasing it anyway. And we know it, but we don't do anything about it. And I, and I think that it may be because we don't call it what it is. It's idolatry, it's idolatry. Right? We think idolatry is this New Testament, or I'm sorry, this Old Testament sin, rather, of like worshiping golden calves and these statues on shelves, right? But I think it's time that here in, the 20, in, the, in 2020, we start calling this what it is. It's idolatry. Trying to fill our hearts and our minds with anything other than the gospel in hopes that we will be made complete and whole. It's idolatry. John said it last week. We're hardwired to worship. To be human is to worship something. To be an idolater in the context of biblical worship is to exchange the holy uncreated creator for an imposter as the recipient of our devotion, our resources, our service, our worship. Money, relationships, family, so many things that are intrinsically good but that jockey for position to be elevated beyond what God created them for, right? Setting us up for heartache and for disappointment. We chase after empty things and we become empty. It's no secret, right? This is not a new thing. It's no secret that empty things will not satisfy. Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes sounds the alarm for us here in the woodlands. He screams at us. He says, it doesn't work. Solomon is wiser than us, right? Solomon's house 
was bigger than ours. Solomon was the king. His job is better than ours. Solomon had 300 wives. I promise you, one of them was better looking than yours, not mine. But (laughs) Solomon screams at us. It's like chasing the wind, man. It's like chasing the wind. And I guarantee you, nobody in this room is ever going to achieve or earn as much as Solomon already has. And he screams at us, it doesn't work. Doesn't work. That's one barrier to worship, drinking from the wrong well, okay? Another barrier to worship, we'll see it here next. In verse 16, Jesus makes what kind of seems to be a random statement, right? But it's actually not random at all because Jesus is going to force the woman's hand, if you will, um, in order to create his next teachable moment. So verse 16, Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, yep, you're right in saying I have no husband for you've had five husbands and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. And this is great right here. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet, right? The literal translation of verse 19 is, oh, snap, all right? And Jesus says, go call your husband. And she says, oh, I'm not married. Jesus says, yeah, I know. But I also know you've been divorced five times and the guy that you're with now, you're just shacking up with. This is the second barrier to worship. It's unconfessed, unrepentant sin. Remember I told you that we were gonna find out why this woman's at the well in the middle of the day instead of the cool of the morning? This is why right here. Because in this society, in this culture, to have been divorced five times would bring on immense shame. She can't show face in the morning with all the other people at the well, right? Because of the decisions and the choices that she's made in her life. And now she, because of that shame, is, finds herself at the, at, at the well in the middle of the day by herself. And Jesus flushes out that sin when the woman gives this cagey answer of, I have no husband. All right now, hear me, church. Hear me, hear me, please. For someone who has surrendered their life to Christ, unconfessed, unrepentant sin will not separate them from the love of Christ and his salvation. I'm gonna say it again. For those who are saved, unconfessed, unrepentant sin will not separate them from the love of Christ and his salvation, but it will most certainly affect your ability to worship, right? It will absolutely hinder your ability to worship, your ability to engage in an intimate, deep, meaningful relationship with Jesus. Because just like Jesus knew this woman's story and the woman's heart, so too does he know your heart, right? Like there are no secrets with Jesus, he knows. And it doesn't have to be like five husbands and shacking up, right? It doesn't have to be this big thing. All of those things in our lives and our hearts and in our minds that go unaddressed, unconfessed, he knows and it keeps us from being able to fully engage in the worship of Jesus. And what makes it so dangerous is that we will continue to, to worship, right? Because we can't help it. But what we do is we shift to things that can't see our hearts. We shift to things that don't require our hearts and we shift to things that crumble and fail. Sean told me something his youth pastor used to say that's absolutely on point right here. He said this, the most miserable person in the world is not a Christian living in sin. No, the most miserable person in the world is the Christian living with unrepentant sin in their life. Why? Because 
The Christian has the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in them and is living a life that is contrary to the Spirit of God living inside them and they are basically at odds with themselves, right? Barriers to worship, drinking from the wrong well and unconfessed, unrepentant sin. So this, this list is two things. It's not exhaustive, obviously, but these are two major issues that Jesus calls out in this story that we are very likely I'm sorry, that are very likely to be present in the life of someone who struggles to worship. All right, back to the roadmap. Last thing, we covered what can hinder our worship of God. Now, what does Jesus say about how we should worship God? We pick up in verse 20. The woman says, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, believe me, the hour's coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you know, what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he'll tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Now, I'm gonna put in a quick plug right here for the TV series, The Chosen. Like I was, um, anybody ever heard of The Chosen? I was literally like reading this story in my office this morning and my six-year-old daughter Riley comes downstairs and kind of hears me reading through it. And she says, Daddy, like I, I know what you're talking about. That's the one where the woman is at the well with Jesus. And at the end, she runs away and is super happy and tells everybody about it. We saw it on that, that thing in TV, right? And she's talking about The Chosen. It's really cool. So this, I, I'm not speaking on behalf of Providence North here. This is just Brett, right? But this, this TV series is a really cool like dramatization of the life of Jesus and his disciples, right? It's not, the, it's not scripture. It's not inerrant truth, but it does do a really good job of kind of bringing to light the context of what's going on in the life of Jesus and his disciples. So little plug for that there. It's great to watch with your kids. Um, but okay, back in. Jesus tells us what? He tells us that he wants our hearts and our minds, right? He tells us that to truly worship God, we must worship in what? In spirit and what? Truth. And the woman kind of pushes back on both of those, right? Saying, I can't worship God in spirit because I can't get to God. Like my situation has got me in a place of uncleanness where I can't get to the, the, the temple to worship because I'm unclean, but I gotta, that's how I have to get clean and I can't do it, right? And like I, I, number two, I just don't understand this truth part of it. So I gotta wait for Messiah to come so he can clear some things up for me. And Jesus basically tells her like, woman, the game just changed, right? If he were in the South, he'd say, sweetheart, sweetheart. He's the game has just changed. She says, I can't gain access to the Father because of who I am and what I've done, and I need the Messiah to sort some things out for me. And Jesus says what? He says, God is spirit. God is not bound by temple walls, just like your heart is not bound by temple walls. And therefore, you can worship him right where you are. He says, as far as that whole Messiah thing goes, well, right? Like, I'm here. Jesus enters the picture and he changes the game. The gospel is available to and for everyone. It's for you, it's for me. It meets us where we are. And when we truly understand it and when we give our heart over to it, 
we get the privilege and the opportunity for a lifetime of intimate, life-changing, life-giving worship of the holy creator of the universe, right? Um, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna have Zach and, and Courtney come back up now. Um, so I, this part of, of, of this process, I, I kind of prayed a lot over actually to get out of because I, don't, I didn't wanna share it, but like God continues to make it heavy on my heart. So I'm gonna attempt to be obedient here, okay? But I'm gonna get a little salty on us, okay? Um, if I need to ask for forgiveness later, I'll do that. Like if you need to email me, that's fine. My email address is sean at providencenorth.org. Like you can get as heated as you want to, okay? Just send me an email. But um, I want you to think about the last live event that you went to. Okay, think about the anticipation that comes with that. Think about the buildup that comes in the time leading up to that event, right? For me, it was an Adele concert, right? Hey, don't judge me, all right? Like, homegirl can straight up sing, all right, boys? So don't judge me, but it was an Adele concert. We were in Austin, we were at the drum, which is where the Longhorns play basketball, and it's just this massive arena, right? It's a big circle with a stage square in the middle, and we were literally on the top row, like our backs were to the wall. And so I'm standing there and I can just see this mass of people all staring down at this one stage where this one woman is gonna walk out, right? And when she does, she walks out on stage and they play those first few notes of the song that everybody knows, everybody goes nuts. They lose their minds. Ashley and I were really fortunate to go to the Super Bowl last year, right? The pinnacle of sporting events. And again, we're sitting with our backs to the very top and looking down on this stadium of people who, for whatever team, have some of them waited their entire lives for this opportunity, right? And like the Super Bowl experience is a whole day and there's all of this buildup and everybody comes into the stadium and the teams run on the field and what happens? Everybody loses their ever-loving mind, right? And they worship, that's what's happening, right? At this concert, at this football, thing at this sporting event, people are worshiping what is down there on the middle of the stage and on the, in the middle of the field. And where, where I get salty is thinking about like, what would it look like from that vantage point in churches all across America on Sunday when there is anticipation and buildup toward entering into a place of worship, not of an artist, not of a team, but of God. And from that vantage point, all you see are people that look half asleep. And I'm talking to me too, y'all. Like I'm, I'm here too. Like I just don't get that. And so my challenge for us today is this, is to learn from what Jesus taught at that well. It's to pray that God would remove those barriers that hold us back and that we would engage in worshiping the one true God in spirit and in truth with a level of intensity and passion that makes the Super Bowl look like a backyard pickup game. And that intensity I'm talking about is in your own heart and your own mind, guys. Outwardly, it can look different for all of us. Some of us is is singing at the top of our lungs with our hands raised. Some of us, it's on our face, on our knees in silence. Guys, I'm not talking about putting on a show for anybody else here. I'm talking about intensity inside our hearts and in our minds. And I'm talking about worshiping our savior in spirit and in truth.